You're listening to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. This episode is a Susquehanna Permaculture Roundtable discussion recorded at my friend Seppi Garrett's on June 3rd, 2015, in front of a live audience. The panel for the conversation were Ben Weiss, Dave Jackie, and Charles Eisenstein. Ostensibly, the conversation was framed around the idea of how to achieve a right livelihood within the society and culture that we currently find ourselves. But as you might imagine, with these three voices in a room together, the bounds of what we cover pushed in every direction and touched on much, much more. For regular listeners who have heard Ben and Dave in the past, this was also candid in many ways that you won't hear elsewhere. This piece is part of two recorded that day, as Charles was with us for only a short time. The second half with Ben, Dave, and various audience members will be released on June 24th, with more roundtables like this one in the works. If you enjoy this episode, become an ongoing podcast patron at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast, or with a one-time donation via the PayPal link on the right-hand side of the podcast page at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Your support is how I keep the show on the air, and I'm able to arrange the time to facilitate the conversation you are about to hear. Now then, on to the round table. I'll join you afterwards with information about where you can find out more about each of the panelists. And so begins the second session of a Susquehanna Permaculture Roundtable discussion. Today, my guests are Ben Weiss, Dave Jackie, and Charles Eisenstein. The basis of our conversation today, as much as we're likely to cover a broad range of topics, is to begin the discussion about how we can all begin to find right livelihood within this culture and society that we exist in, that we can do what it is that we love and want to do, and with that, to have a joyous and comfortable existence. If each of you might give us a little bit of your background, and then we'll get the conversation rolling from there. Ben, if we might start with you. Thanks, Scott. Glad to be on your show again. I like your show a lot. I'm Ben Weiss. I am one of the permaculturists who runs the business called Susquehanna Permaculture and has helped establish the guild that we call Susquehanna Permaculture. I studied permaculture at the Farm Ecovillage Training Center in Tennessee and at Crimpy in Colorado. Uh, I've been an organic farm manager, home brewer, forager. I've done permaculture design and installation, a writer, and a father, and a musician. I've been uh, listening to Charles's I guess it's not your first book, but to The Ascent of Humanity recently, and I'm very familiar with Dave's work. So I'm, I'm humbled to be uh, sitting on a, on a panel with these two guys. Dave? I'm Dave Jackie. I don't know what to say about myself. I'm just a guy who happens to be on this planet somehow. I um, have been concerned about the fate of the planet since I was three years old, really, and uh, interested in ecology from a very young age, and although I didn't have that word for it early on, and then studied ecology formally when I was 16 in college and wanted to apply it to humanity's existence starting at that age, and then heard about permaculture and took my permaculture course with Bill Mollison in 1981, uh, the second course he taught in the U.S., and decided that since he didn't really teach me design, per se, I needed to get some training and went to graduate school at the Conway School of Landscape Design and been out in the School of Hard Knocks ever since. So I have been a homesteader, a communard, a landscraper, as I like to call it, as well as a landscaper, 
and uh, an author. I wrote, was a lead author on Edible Forest Gardens, two-volume set, working now with Mark Kravchek on the Coppice Agroforestry book. And uh, I guess I'm just a man about town or something. And Charles, if you could give us an introduction to yourself and your work. I'm a speaker and a writer. I wrote some books. The best known is probably Sacred Economics um, and The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. I guess I became an ecologist maybe a little later than you, maybe around age 10 or so, when my father told me that all the passenger pigeons were extinct. We were looking at a flock of birds, and I said, that was a pretty big flock of birds. And he said, well, there used to be flocks that covered the sky from one horizon to the other for three days straight, but they're all dead now. And that kind of gave uh, some form to the this kind of latent grief that I felt without knowing why. From those backgrounds in a care for the earth, where did your concern for the people that inhabit this planet and their well-being come from, and this desire to change the way that we're able to live on this earth? I'll let these guys speak for themselves, but I think that the, uh, the concern for the well-being of the people on earth came from where it comes for everybody. You know, it's, it's innate to us, and it's only our system and our ideology that cuts it off and distances ourselves from our natural default state of love. I'm down with that. Uh, this is Dave. And, uh, you know, it's also, for me, based in experience of uh, my family and people around me being traumatized and in pain and feeling that, feeling the having empathy and for that and having my own experience and somehow from a very early age being able to draw the connections between what I experience, what other people experience, and how we treat each other and how we treat the planet. And there's no, there's no separation there. And I've somehow known that deeply from a very early age. I experienced the earth care, people care thing as a false dichotomy. So uh, one of the things that's been emerging me, in me lately uh, about that way of stating the ethics, that it still maintains the belief that humans and nature are separate, to have them as a separate, separate ethics in that, that triplet there. So I, I don't know what to do about that, but that's what I've been aware of. This is Ben. I feel constantly blessed to have been raised in a family that held concern for the well-being of humanity in the highest regard. I remember once when I, I must have been like three or four years old, I was staying over at my grandparents' apartment and my grandpa was putting me to bed. And uh, we were talking about slavery. And I asked him why the British had enslaved Africans and his answer in these exact words was because they were racist bastards. <laughs> so that's the family that I come from and I only started to understand recently that um, even though my family has shed most of its Jewish cultural heritage that there's an ethic that's central to Judaism that's called tikkun ha'olam which means the repair of the world. I think that that is strong in my family and I think that for me that's I see that as like the really deep roots of where my concern for humanity's well-being arose from. With that concern for humanity, what do you see as ways to change this narrative that we're sold? That each of you came from a background where at a young age you had this opportunity to develop this concern for people and the earth as one, as this interconnected idea. And for my own life, it began first with the people because I came from a large family that was very concerned about others. It didn't matter where you came from. If you showed up on my grandmother's doorstep, you were family, that kind of a tradition. 
But then out of that, the story that I was told through culture and society was one of disconnection. That as money and affluence became more available to many people, that it became, you should work a job that pays you well enough that then you can purchase the services of others, that you can buy what it is you need and then kind of exist on this island of your own, disconnected from earth, from people, or from any sense of community. And a lot of times in having these conversations, I feel lost on where to go. And I'm wondering what insight you might provide on what we can do to understand our own narrative and our own experiences within that broader culture and where we might begin our transformation. My experience and understanding of how the world is put together would have me urge you to start within and to acknowledge that you know the, the narrative of our culture is false. And when I quiet myself and just take a few breaths, you know, which I invite all of us to do right now, just tune in, feel our bodies in space, where our bodies touch the earth. This chair that I'm sitting in is earth, earth transformed. And when I feel that and then feel my head in the sky, as long as I'm upright, and my breath in between, just doing its thing of its own accord, I can experience myself outside of the box of what my culture has told me I am. And when we're doing goals articulation and design, we need that. That's where our goals come from. That's where, that's what's true about us. It comes from inside. We don't want to impose our goals from our head. We want to detect them inside ourselves. And so, you know, where do we start is, is with what's true, what we know in this moment inside of us about what's next. What's the next step? What's the next thing to do? Or what's, what's the feeling? What's the feeling telling me? We are amazing, amazing creatures. And the disconnection that our culture has created or attempted to create within us, where we don't acknowledge our emotions as sources of information, very sophisticated information processing system telling us about ourselves in relation to each other and ourselves in relation to our environment. And we have to acknowledge that and learn how to relate to that information management system, to put it in really techno, nasty techno terms. But it's, it is that. It functions as that not just our thoughts, uh, but our emotions are really critical. And there's things beyond emotions. I don't think the word emotions carries the meaning deeply enough. So intuitions or, you know, words begin to fail at some point, but having access to those parts of ourselves, to those aspects of ourselves is critical for all of this. It's critical to me as a designer on the ground, designing for people, you know, and letting information come to me from the land, from the client, from myself. And so I always try and start there. Charles here, I'm going to add to what Dave was saying, because that, that practice he's talking about, about like tuning in and listening to what's within, the word practice comes naturally to describe that because it's also practice for listening to that which is without, which is the attitude really of humility, where you come to maybe a piece of land and you don't just like take whatever you, you know, whatever designs that you might have learned from a permaculture book and impose them on that land. That's not very a very deep kind of permaculture. You have to listen to the land, observe it, get to know it, become intimate with it. And what you apply then in response to what you've heard might be very different to what you would apply in another at another piece of land. So partly this is a recognition that 
what's inside of ourselves and what's outside of ourselves are connected. Because when, when you take in that information, maybe you don't even know where it's going to lead you, but it changes who you are. Anytime that you're in an intimate relationship with anybody, whether it's a person or you know, some soil or a plant or, or an animal, that intimate relationship expands who you are. You're no longer just who you were. You are yourself plus that other being that you've taken in. And from that place, your thoughts, your emotions, feelings, intuitions are going to be different from what they were before. You know, also, like Dave was talking before about how there really is no distinction between care for humanity and care for the planet, for nature. I mean, really, we're kind of going through this evolution of the expansion of the self, which was through the Industrial Revolution, the Enlightenment, was narrowed down to this discrete, separate moat of consciousness, you know, imprisoned in flesh, separate from, from all these other selves out there, and separate from the world, which was thought to be just a bunch of inanimate stuff, you know, chemical building blocks. So in the last couple centuries, we've been slowly awakening from this. So for example, no longer treating, you know, racial minorities or women or people who aren't, who don't fit, you know, sexual norms or whatever. We're no longer treating them as subhuman, at least we're working on it, you know, and, and giving them full selfhood, essentially full agency. And the next step would be to do that to non-human beings, uh, not only animals, but plants, mountains soil, everything, you know, and once you give them agency, then it makes sense to listen to them and not impose design on them because there's an organic purpose or, or desire that it wants to move toward. So then the attitude becomes, well, what does the land want? What's the dream of the land? And that includes the human beings also. Uh, and so I think that, that really, I mean, I'm not an expert on permaculture, but I have a very deep affinity and attraction to it because I see it as part of the same movement of changing the deep story, the deep story of who we are. Uh, what is a human being? What is our role on this planet? What is the nature of reality? How does change happen in the world? Like these are the deep stories that are changing. And to, to address your question specifically, I mean, I think any action uh, that embodies a new story changes the story because you're providing a living example that violates what people thought of as normal. And so it kind of affirms that little part of themselves that was like, you know, thinking, well, I might be crazy, but I don't really believe in all this, you know? I don't want to do this. And that'll lead us to our to the topic you were talking about. You could call it right livelihood or how do I make a living doing what I love and what I really care about when the whole system is set up to reward things that are destroying what I love. I've been speaking long enough, but I I was just kind of wanting to nudge it in that direction. Because when I asked two people before we started, like what kind of, what's on your mind, you know, like that was one of the things that came up. Like that's present for everybody. Ben? I'm so glad that both of you uh, said what you just said, because I have to say a lot less of what I was thinking. <laughs> one time, Scott, on your show a few years ago, I said something about how the creation myth of permaculture includes this almost worship of native cultures. And yet permaculture as a design science clings so heavily to modern science and that there are ways of knowing that traditional people spent many, many millennia cultivating that um, modern science refuses to acknowledge are real. And I got a lot of backlash 
via email from saying those things on your show. You know, and even just recently wrote an article uh, that sort of went viral on Facebook and mentioned the word, the term spiritual permaculture somewhere in there. And a lot of people were pissed off about that too. To build on what, what Charles was just saying and to use what I just said as a foundation for that, my initial response to your question of how do we begin to shift towards something better is, is all about narrative and story. And we live in a world where we're one of the youngest species. I often go and sit underneath a huge ginkgo tree that grows in a cemetery. Ginkgo trees, they're the oldest tree species on earth. Somebody out there probably knows how how many millions of years old that species is. And uh, increasingly, even modern science through fields like epigenetics are starting to realize that there is actual wisdom that gets passed down from generation to generation through species. And here we are at a moment of utter crisis because of the way that our species has been behaving. And I believe that the guidance that we need comes from our elders, not the elder people, but the elder beings. And like Charles was just saying, if we can't even acknowledge their beinghood, we can't receive any of the stories that they could tell us. And in my own practice studying with uh, some shamans over the last 10 years, I've gone through a process of trying to begin to approach plants and land features as conscious beings. And I've seen that most of them seem unwilling to talk to us because they're really angry at us. But I've also seen that once one of them begins to communicate with us, it seems like that they begin to vouch for us. I was just explaining this to some students in my PDC the other day. For me, the portal into communicating with the world and trying to receive a better story was just through my love of plants. And as I got to know a few plants, it was like they showed me things that helped me to get to know other plants. And then all those plants showed me things that helped me to get to know the land or animals. And that expands and expands. And there is actually, there really is a voice. There is a voice there that guided us for most of the history of our species that we only stopped listening to as a culture within the last few thousand years. And that voice can put us back on the right track. Charles, as a follow-up? Yeah, I have a little follow-up to that. Just just because, like, I wasn't aware that, that this show would have people who would be really triggered by the kind of thing that Ben's saying. So let me frame it in post-colonialist terminology. Probably everybody listening to this show would be critical of conventional development paradigms, where you go into some country, you tell them that their way of life is primitive, their subsistence agriculture is primitive, and they should get with the program, plant monoculture plantations, and the rest of you go work in the factory. Like that mode of development we're realizing is killing the planet. No spirituality is required to realize that. So that's called economic imperialism. So there's an exact parallel that you might call ontological imperialism that says not only do you not know how to live as well as we do, and we know much better because look at our glorious civilization, but you also don't understand the nature of reality as well as we do and how to know as well as we do. So you need to become more like us. That's an exact parallel to other kinds of colonialism. And now I think we're reaching a point of humility, you know, like, how do we know that we know better than you do? Is it because we've 
succeeded in such glorious achievements on this planet. And well, maybe there's a few problems, but all we have to do is apply our way of knowing even more. So I, I, I was reading this uh, anthropological book um, about some agrarian culture in South America. I can't remember where it was. And they had these irrigation ditches, you know, that they've been using for hundreds of generations or whatever. And the water always reaches everybody's field. And then the agronomists came in and said, we can improve on this. A certain amount of water is being lost to the, you know, through getting soaked into the, to the ground. You need to pave these with, with cement, you know, and it'll be much more efficient that way. And we have the science to prove it. And the people said, no, that's not going to work because the plants that grow in the dirt alongside these ditches, they invite the water. They're friends with the water. And they said, friends with the water. Water is H2O. Plants don't have friendship. You are engaging in a childish anthropomorphic projection, just like a child does. You know, oh, my teddy bear is tired. My dolly is hungry. We grow out of that. And as a culture, we've grown out of that. And it's time for you to grow out of that too. Now, I'm making up this conversation, but that's essentially the attitude underneath it. So they paved all of the irrigation ditches with concrete at great expense, incurring foreign debt to the country, et cetera, et cetera, and forcing them into a commodity export model. But that's a whole different story. What happened on the ground was that the water didn't reach all the fields anymore because, well, the scientific explanation would be that it was no longer shaded by the plants. The unscientific explanation, which taps into another way of knowing, is that the plants were no longer inviting and encouraging the water, its friend, to go where they needed it to go. So, I mean, it's just like Ben was saying, our trust in the way of knowing that we're used to is, is faltering. And let's let go of the arrogance, you know, and open up to other sources of information. This is Dave. I would love to let go of my arrogance. I am still an arrogant bastard. You know, I don't want to be, but God, man, the acculturation is so intense. And I've written down a bunch of notes about things responding to all these things. But the thing I want to bounce off of initially right now with, with what Charles was, was just saying is, you know, I mentioned my, my issue with the ethics of permaculture as stated and how it continues that separation of people and nature. Well, there's a whole critique that I could make of the ethics of permaculture and the philosophy of permaculture. Because, you know, my understanding, I, I'm not a philosophy major, I'm not a student of philosophy, but what little philosophy I have did learn in college, they talk about three core elements of any philosophical system to be a whole system. It needs to have at least three things, an axiology, an ontology, and an epistemology. Latinate words, very heady words. Latinate words tend to be heady. Axiology is the principles and the ethics, right? Permaculture has those probably too many principles, right? We don't have a consistent set of principles. We haven't come to agreement. I'm fine with that. I think that's part of the evolution. But we could say that permaculture has a fairly clear axiology because people are actually wrestling with that. But that's just one of the three. And the ontology, which is, you know, what's a valid way of knowing? That is still unconscious in the permaculture movement. And this is, this is where, you know, Ben's gotten in trouble. I've gotten in trouble. This is what Charles was just talking about is what do we consider to be valid ways of knowing? And permaculture as a movement, as a philosophy, has not clarified that. And we're definitely caught up in the Western model of what's a valid way of knowing. Many people. And this is one of the frustrations I've been having with permaculture and makes me not want to use the word in association with myself. The other one is the epistemology is, what is the nature of reality? We don't have a clear idea about that either. We're still caught up in the Western view of that. What is the nature of reality? Who are we? 
And we, as a movement, as if we're going to be an organized movement and organized philosophy, we have to get clear on all three of those things. And they have to vibrate in harmony. They have to be consistent. Otherwise, we're going to be at war with ourselves. We're going to be in conflict with ourselves. Maybe not, maybe not at war. There's that language right there, right? But we have barely begun to define what permaculture is. We have barely, barely begun. And people think Mollison's designer's manual is the Bible. Give me a frickin' break. It is barely, barely, barely the beginning of understanding what permaculture is and can be. And I'd love us to let go of the word permaculture too, because that bird bugs the hell out of me. But that's another story. The same thing will happen to whatever word replaces it too. So, you know. One of the conversations that I've had with Dave in the past, both on and off the air, is about governing values versus espoused values. We say that we have a certain set of beliefs, but our actions show another. And I feel with the language that you use, Charles, about imperialism, that there's some of that going on with many of these movements and different groups that are trying to move the narrative that once there's an engagement at a certain point, it becomes a, well, my, my direction is best or what I know is the right thing. And there's this discounting of the experiences and perspectives of others. And with that idea of right livelihood, I've been encountering very much, and this comes to mind because I just finished editing a kind of a supercut with Ethan Hughes, who's a fellow who lives on a petrol-free, electricity-free farm. And in his conversation, he was with a group of permaculture practitioners, and he asked them, what's everybody's net worth? And not associating with anybody, but just collect those numbers together. And in that room was $13 million of financial capital, but it didn't move anywhere. It was held onto and being captured within that group of people as each of us try to find a right livelihood and to inhabit our own place in the world in disconnecting from this mother culture that has steered us in a way that we're no longer comfortable with in knowing what it is that to us is right and trying to move forward in the world and make a living with it, how do the three of you see us being able to write a story and find a way forward with all of the things that are in place that are hurdles, especially when it's people, many people who say that they support us, who espouse that they support us, but when we ask them for assistance, they close that door. I'm a little confused. This was a room full of permaculture farmers who had a net worth of $13 million total? Uh, Not just permaculture farmers, but permaculture practitioners, designers, different people who were involved in the community. Wow. I mean, most of the permaculture practitioners I know have a net worth, I mean, maybe six figures if you include dimes and cents. I, I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure if I really understand your question, so I'll pass it to Dave. Okay. So... I've been involved in permaculture by that name for 34 years and interested and involved and thinking about it for longer. And in my observation over all this time, I've seen a lot of system failures in the permaculture movement. A lot of people have done stuff that have not succeeded. Now, there's been successes too, um, obviously, because we're still here. (laughs) But my reading of the failures is that the proximate cause of failure almost without exception, the proximate cause of failure lies in the lack of or poor design of the social and economic structures. And how do we do that, right? And permaculture is extremely, extremely immature around that. 
in my opinion. So is pretty much everyone else, all right? There's, there's very few who have that down in this planet, as far as I know, except for those folks in the mountains of Columbia who avoided us, this culture, for so long, right? And people like that. But my observation also has been both from direct experience and also as a, working with clients and from observing different things that other people are doing that I know closely or from a distance, is that the essential cause of failure is almost always in what I call the inner landscape. So in your case, where you the example you gave of $13 million in the room, people are still acting according to the rules, the social and economic rules of this culture. So they're keeping that capital as part of the capital economy rather than the gift economy, let's call it, right? If we live in this culture and we're surrounded by this culture, the Western culture, the capital culture, the on-your-own culture, the atomized, individualistic, me, 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 me culture, the culture of heroism, right? All these are inner attitudes, right? If we're surrounded by that and do not have solid, clear designs for a new alternative social structure that is clearly laid out, that we all know what the rules are and how it operates, we're unlikely to give up on what we know works as well as it has. If people have accumulatively have have $13 million in the room, they've done pretty well for themselves, and they're unlikely to give that structure up until they know they have a lifeboat that they're not going to sink in this winner-take-all, you-lose, sayonara kind of situation. And that's a rational decision, actually. We really can't blame ourselves or other people for making that decision in that context. There's no shame in that. It's just we have, to, we have to do a better job of designing the social structures that are alternatives and not ask people to risk everything on that social structure so we can, we can have some mistakes and make some failures in that social and economic realm and not sink or swim situation, perhaps. Maybe putting people in a sink or swim situation is what we need in, actually, in order to actually make it work. I don't know. But we need massive innovation of social and economic system design in different contexts so that people can have a sense of what actually works and can I give up the capitalist economy? Because what's the alternative to the capitalist economy? We don't have one yet. We just don't have one yet. And we have to create that. I was part of a land trust community in New Hampshire. And when I went through a divorce, I got screwed, basically. I lost a lot of money. That's why it's taken me 20 years to get back on a piece of land. Because I ended up without really any capital leaving that place because of how that all worked out. Even though we had clear rules, you can't legislate morality and how people decide to act, you know. But still, I'm glad for the experience. I've learned a lot from that experience and that knowledge capital I want to share. And I just did, you know. I mean, we have to, we have to think through the consequences and understand because if people are afraid that they're not that they're going to sink unless they have that capital in their back pocket somewhere, then they're not going to take the leap. Again, I'm just going to kind of build on that a bit. The inner landscape, you know, I think that one of the biggest impediments to successfully navigating right livelihood is the attempt to be a good person. If your goal is to conform to some image of what a good person does, then the likely result is that you will achieve conforming to that image. But that image might be bolstered by failure, you know? At least I was a good person, you know? And I sacrificed everything and, 
and I was pure, you know, and I didn't taint myself with certain economic practices and so on and so forth. Like if that's your motive to like yourself, then that's what you will achieve, but you will not achieve things like changing the system, healing the land and so on. And I'm, I'm laying it out in very stark terms here. I mean, usually, you know, there's a little bit of both, right? So let's just say to the extent that we can free ourselves from this conditional self-approval, we'll be a lot more effective. Now, if I had a lot of money and I wanted to help somebody who's a permaculture practitioner, I would avoid like the plague, somebody who had that motive that I just spoke of, because I know that I'm just feeding their vanity and that money's going down the sewer. Once we let go of being purists, then we can do, you know, what the true permaculturist does is to listen, not only to the, to the land, but to the social environment and let go of dogma. You know, like maybe what is needed is to charge really high prices for your biodynamic eggs, $7 a dozen. I could give lots of reasons why you should do that. And I could give lots of reasons why you shouldn't do that. Like, how do you know? It depends on, 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 on listening. Ultimately, and this is another thing Dave was pointing to, ultimately, like, we can't have a totally new healthy system that's embedded in an unhealthy system. We can do it for a while. Like, you can get, you know, you can get like your incubator, you can get your safe space, you know, the universe in its generosity will arrange for that to happen. But sooner or later, like that dictum of Buckminster Fuller, you know, just make a new one, everyone will come to that and it'll make the old one obsolete. Well, what happens when your new one becomes illegal, you know? Like, is it legal to have composting toilets in Pennsylvania? I don't think so. In most states, you can't. I'm not sure. I don't think you can. Like, I mean, a lot of the best stuff, like living machines, you know, I mean, that stuff's illegal. So eventually, you're going to bump up against the system and even up all the way to the global systems level of the money system. I mean, I write about that kind of stuff. Like, at some point, we get political. We're going to have to get political. And because the world-destroying machine that's driven by the debt-based money system, eventually, it's so hungry that it will search for any kind of natural or social wealth to monetize that it can. And it will not stop until it's converted everything into money. And that's what's happening today. And so I think some of the most significant uh, movements today are the social movements, especially debt resistance. Like a lot of these questions we're talking about, they wouldn't even be an issue if we had a fundamentally different economic system with say a universal basic income, uh, something like that, that doesn't force you to monetize more and more aspects of your life. Like we're all in this together. You know, like I'm not, you know, a permaculture activist really, although it's one of my favorite topics, but you know, like we can understand who's our ally because we're all addressing different expressions of the same story. And so I think maybe maybe it would help to explicitly acknowledge that so that we're not saying, oh, you know, permaculture, that's fine. But the most important thing is, you know, monetary system reform. And someone else says, yeah, but what about, you know, healing racism, you know, and so forth. Like we're all working on the same, same new story, new and ancient story. And then Charles, our time with you for this round table is coming to a close. So I'd like to provide an opportunity for you to provide the final thoughts for the listeners from this first discussion. I'm kind of bummed that I have to leave. Like, this is really getting good. Maybe that's because I've been doing most of the talking and I like that. But <laughs> again, to echo Dave, like we are just toe deep in an ocean. What's permaculture going to be like in 600 years? You know, we don't know. There's so much we don't know. And I like the idea of embracing that not knowing. It's the same not knowing that 
the permaculture practitioner embraces when he comes to a new piece of land. Maybe the first step is to just be there not doing anything for a month, you know, just observing, trying little experiments that you're not attached to just to see what happens, you know. And I think with our concepts and ideas, you know, I think that the era of the of the crusader who's so smart that he's figured out the right design beforehand. And his main job, therefore, is to proselytize that and convince everybody else that he's right. Ah, uh, you know, like we don't know enough yet to do that. Plus that feeds into the, you know, the ego, like I'm right. And, and yeah, so I, I guess my, my word is, you know, especially if something in this show has triggered you, maybe just it's like, yeah, I'm feeling riled up about that, but I don't know. Let's embrace the not knowing. Then Ben and Dave, if you could provide us a response to Charles' closing words. So I want to build on and, and reaffirm what both of you guys said about the importance of the change beginning within in the inner landscape. Years ago, I was reading a book by the Dalai Lama where he described a prophecy that the Buddha left for his followers, where he said that the reason that his name was um, Shakyamuni is that I don't know the the wordplay here, that that had something to do with the fact that he was the Buddha of compassion and that in the time when he came into the world, that the root cause of everyone's suffering was desire and that compassion was what was needed to dispel that kind of suffering. And then he said that the next time that the Buddha came, his name would be Maitreya and that would be the Buddha of love. And the Buddha of love would come in a time when the root cause of everyone's suffering is fear. And the Dalai Lama in that book said that according to the conjecturing of those ancient monks who received that prophecy, we're somewhere around the time now when the Maitreya should come, which means that the world is mired in fear and it's hard to argue that it's not. And what I've seen in my brief 10 years as a permaculturist compared to Dave's 34 is that despite a lot of the listening that I've done to my community, to people who had their own prophecies about what was about to happen, despite the fact that I've tried to work for these 10 years to create programs that are nested in the culture we have now, but give people pathways to step out of that, I've found that the vast majority of the people who came to step into those pathways didn't have the material well-being to support me in my work. And that has been frightening to me because I feel like I'm giving my work away for far less than it's worth. And at the same time, I've struggled and asked for support for my work from people who have the kind of funding that Scott was saying Ethan Hughes has in his permaculture class. And I haven't received that support. And I feel like I'm in a place right now of disillusionment and confusion about not only permaculture, but all of the associated movements that are trying to step towards a new story. And the only answer that I can come up with to why even when people are given good opportunities where they don't have to sacrifice everything that, that they know works already why even then so often people are unwilling to take that step towards something better is fear. I 
can't come up with anything other than that. Dave, your response? Well, uh, while Charles was talking, one response was tears. Uh, They didn't quite come out, but they were definitely there because a lot of what you were saying, Charles, was hitting home for me about what goes on inside of me. So that was that was great, and I'm looking forward to listening to it again on the podcast. <laughs> you know, I have this image coming to mind that I learned from studying plant ecology and plant strategies when I was writing Edible Forest Gardens. In a way, those of us who are trying to do this work are like plants living on the forest floor in a climax forest. Those kinds of plants, their main strategy is called stress tolerator. And the stress tolerator plant strategy is different from the other two, which uh, J.P. Grime uh, discussed. One, the first one is the ruderals, which are, the ruderal is the Latin word for rubble. So those are plants that are disturbance adapted. And they're the ones, they're usually annuals and biennials, and they come in right after disturbance. The competitors are mid-succession species. So the ruderal strategy is reproduce as fast as possible and make as many kids as you possibly can. Those seeds are designed to be able to live in the ground for hundreds of years and re-sprout the next disturbance. The competitor strategy, they put most of their energy into getting as big as possible, as fast as possible, and taking up all the resources they possibly can, which is, by the way, I can see this strategy present in the permaculture movement these days, socially. And they take up all that space and resources, figuring they'll reproduce later. And they have time to reproduce. As long as they get as as much resource as possible, they will reproduce a little bit here, a little bit there, but they're going to get all the space they can. And and the thing with the competitors is they're not long-lasting. They don't live long. They build tissues rapidly, and therefore the tissues decompose rapidly. Stress tolerators, on the other hand, are adapted to growing underneath and around the competitors, living on the crumbs, living on little bits of sunshine, little bits of nutrient, little bit of water, and they build tissues that stand the test of time and resist herbivory, they resist decay, and they slowly trickle, feed their roots, and store nutrients and energy in their roots, waiting for a gap. And very often, especially the rhizomatous herbs in the forest floor of the climax forest, so-called climax, climax that doesn't actually exist, it's a, non, a non-real theory, that concept. But in any case, the idea there is that they often, they have to cobble together a living. They have roots in one place to get water, roots in another place to get nutrients, different kinds of nutrients. They have to have their shoots somewhere else to get the sunlight. And they're cobbling together a living on the forest floor amidst the giants who are hogging all the sun and all the nutrients. That was me and my primary family, my family of origin, the youngest of five kids. That was me in the early days of permaculture trying to cobble together a living in a market where there was n- nobody knew what permaculture was and trying to cobble together a living in whatever way I could to survive so that I could come to flower in writing edible forest gardens. This is most of us in this culture of giant corporations who are sucking all the money and you got to have more than one leg to stand on. You got to be smart about where you put your roots and where you put your shoots and you got to tie them together in a functional way and trickle feed your root structure and store it up. So that's the image that comes to mind for me. And I'm not sure how it relates to all the rest of the conversation we had, but 
You know, it's that unity between humanity and nature. You know, the patterns in nature apply to us. And those planets are our teachers. And we have to put ourselves in that place where we can listen long enough and quietly enough to get the message they're giving us. That's all I know how to do to make it through this because I don't have much of a clue beyond that, to be honest. There's a very good economic reason why permaculture doesn't attract very much financial investment and that when it does attract financial investment, it usually isn't permaculture. That's because the financial investment goes naturally toward anything that's going to bring even more money back. So if it's going toward anything in agriculture, it's going to be something that's going to, however much money is input, even more profit is going to arise. And that probably means that you're coordinating quite well with the commodity economy and, and so on. So if permaculture is going to get funded, and if people practicing permaculture are going to get funded, the money is going to have to come from a source that doesn't seek to get a return on investment. In other words, the money is going to have to be a gift. There's no getting around that. Well, thank you, all three of you, Ben, Dave, and Charles, for joining us for this first roundtable discussion, uh, looking at some of the broader issues and problems that all of us face moving forward. And thank you for joining us. And that was the first half of the discussion on Right Livelihood with Ben Wise, Dave Jackie, and Charles Eisenstein. You can find out more about Ben at susquehannapc.com. Dave's website is ediblefortgardens.com, and Charles is at charleseisenstein.net. I'm going to hold my commentary on this until the release of part two on June 24th. In the meantime, I want to let you know that I will be a guest instructor at Jude Hobbs' upcoming teacher training in cooperation with Beyond Organic Design on June 28th at the Commons in Brooklyn, New York. You can find out more at beyondorganicdesign.com. After that, I'll be a keynote speaker on Friday, August 21st, 2015, talking about building resilient communities and permanent culture at the Radical Gathering in Bowling Green, Kentucky. That's a four-day event of music and workshops that runs from August 20th through the 23rd, 2015. The website for that festival is at Radical, R-A-D-I-C-L-E, gathering.com. I'm also going to be recording a roundtable discussion on September 12th, 2015 at the Riverside Project in West Virginia. I'll share more information about that event as details come together. If you have an event you'd like me to come to or to serve as a panelist or a speaker, let me know. Email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, call 717-827-6266, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. That's also how you can reach me if you have any questions about permaculture, or if I can connect you with someone who you've heard on the show. That's going to wrap this episode. I'll join you next week with an interview from Penny Livingston Stark. Until then, take care of Earth, yourself, and each other.